Welcome to the Beyond 3D podcast, where we explore all things 3D related. Technology trends, challenges customers face, business issues, and the opportunities around software development for the engineering, manufacturing, and AEC industries. We also discuss the important role that 3D data plays throughout the manufacturing process, driving decisions throughout the product's life cycle. Here on Beyond 3D, we talk with industry analysts, business owners, developers, and industry influencers, and hear real stories that you can relate to and learn from, and know which trends and technologies apply to your business. So join us as we go Beyond 3D. Gabriel Perigine, TechSoft 3D Community Leader and the host for today's episode. I'd like to welcome today's guest, Arthur Muller. Um, today, we're chatting with him about simulation. Um, before we get started, Arthur, would you mind telling us just a little bit about yourself and kind of uh, where you came from in your career? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to do that. And I've been in the fire and element business for many decades, I would say more than three decades by now. And uh, I got my master's thesis on finite elements. I got my PhD in finite elements. Every single job I ever had in my life has been in the finite element analysis world. So I am very familiar with a lot of aspects of finite elements, going from structural analysis to computational fluid dynamics, electromagnetics, you name it. I mean, I have even been asked once to do modeling of liquid crystal analysis. And yeah, it was successful, but it was a limited market. So it didn't really go that far. <laughs> wow. You have quite a, an impressive background. I would love to just kind of get your um, viewpoint about the differences between simulation and physical testing. Okay. Uh, physical testing, first of all, is a very expensive thing to do. And uh, sometimes not even possible. You don't, you don't just, let's say, build a 747 or a 737 airplane and then say, let's try it out and see if it flies. <laughs> it's guaranteed to not fly, I can tell you that. There are probably on the order of millions of different parts that go into an aircraft. So everything and anything that can be modeled will be modeled. Okay, especially aircraft where weight is a big issue. So anything you can do and your model says you can reduce the mass by one pound here and there, everything counts because it's fuel. And fuel is one of the highest costs in an airplane. So as much as they can reduce that, they're gonna be very happy to do that. So people try to do modeling as much as they can. And quite often, the modeling is not sufficient and not because the model was bad. Sometimes that's the case too. They had a bad model and they didn't, they got a result that was unexpected, but sometimes uh, they just never expected a problem. So they never accounted for that in the modeling in the first place. And when that's the case, uh, they only find out when the product is already out there. And if it's like an automobile, then it is the most expensive thing you can do when building a car. And that's a recall. And it's just very, very expensive. And auto companies try to avoid that very much. I would say 
auto companies are probably the number one consumers of structural analysis codes because they've been depending on this since I would say the 1960s probably. So it's been around for a long time. It's verified and people like the results. They are quite accurate in many, many, many cases. So people live with that. So I know there's a difference just between like the automobile types of things and something you were talking about before, which is fluid flow. Um, can you talk a little yeah. bit about kind of like the differences and scale and things like that? Yeah, physically, actually, if you think about it, I mean, they all follow Newton's law, force equals mass times acceleration. It's just how exactly you perceive the whole problem. When you look at structural mechanics, think of like a body that's falling and deforming and crashing and the pieces fall everywhere. That's structural mechanics. That means you're following the path of every particle as it moves and as it deforms. When you look at computational fluid dynamics, this is not what you want to do. You don't know if you want to say like, see what's going to happen to an airplane when it's flying. You don't just say, here's a particle of air. Let's see its effect. And we're going to follow this particle forever and ever. It's going to be miles away from the plane. It doesn't really matter what happens to that particle. So instead, you look at a different point of view. What you do is you try to look from the perspective of what happens in this volume that I'm looking at, which is just the volume surrounding the airplane. That changes the formulas. The physics is the same, but the formulation is different because in one case, you're following the particle wherever it goes. In the other case, you're just looking at a location in space and look at the particles that are going through that location and their physics and how they will affect the motion of the airplane. So in a way, it is the same type of physics, but the formulas look radically different and computational fluid mechanics is usually a much more difficult problem to solve. There are a lot of physics that happen there. There is turbulence and there are many different models of turbulence. There are boundary layers and boundary layers are this thin layer of the fluid around the body and that's pretty much where everything happens because the drag, the lift, etc., everything happens in this very thin boundary layer. So even meshing is an issue. You can just take the air around the airplane and model everything with uniform size elements. Whatever is very, very close to the airplane is barely visible. You can zoom in and zoom in and zoom in until finally you don't even see an airplane anymore. And you start seeing, oh, here are the elements, these very, very thin elements. That's where all the physics is happening in general. So that's the different perspective between the two. The physics is still Newtonian physics in every case. Of course, there's the material model, fluids behave different. In, solids and steel is not the same as water. It's not the same as air. So the mechanical behavior is different. So there are different material models you deal with, but in general, you're talking about modeling the physics, the balance of forces, the balance of mass, the balance of energy. And that's what modeling is all about. So when mm -hmm. it comes like to the challenges um, of these tools, you mentioned like the complexity and the number of elements and the complexity for solving for one of those is the largest 
one of the largest challenges. Are there other challenges that go along with that? Well, I mean, the size of the problem based on the number of uh, variables, the mesh size, et cetera, that's always an issue. It's been an issue since uh, finite elements were first invented, I think in the 60s. And uh, people always kept saying, when I have a bigger machine, then I'll be able to solve the problem. It's never like that. You have a bigger machine, now I want to solve a bigger problem. And it's been like this. I remember the first finite element mesh I ever created myself for my master's thesis. I actually drew that by hand on a piece of paper. And there were exactly, I don't know, 50 elements. And it was really hard. I had my wife helping me draft it, et cetera. And now we talk a million elements as a small problem. Oh, a million elements, you can solve that in a few seconds in a computer these days. It's not a problem. When you talk 10 million, I have uh, seen models with about 100 million elements. Those are really, really big. And that's a challenge because now you start requiring more than one computer. You have to basically break the problem up and send each piece of the problem to a different computer. And then these computers need to talk to each other at every step of the analysis to make sure they are in sync and they are solving the problem all at once. So these are challenges, definitely. And there are, of course, the challenges of making sure the material that uh, you, you are using, you have very good model for that numerically. I mean, there are, I mean, there are political issues, which is like people talk about global warming and people talk about the models. Well, I mean, you cannot just do an experiment, right? You're not, okay, let's try this on a few planets around us and see what happens. It's just not the way it works. So you basically have to live with models. You talked a little bit about like some examples where you had a challenge that you couldn't solve. Can you maybe give me an example like that? I can give you some examples of uh, sometimes the problems are really difficult. Okay, and It could be like, oh, I think this airplane, let's try to make this airplane go at a much higher speed. And then you find out, okay, I'm going to have to cross the sound barrier to do that. Well, is that a problem or not? And uh, now we know we can do it. I mean, there are planes that go much higher than the speed of sound. But people had to deal with these problems until somebody had the courage to say, I'm going to be a pilot in one of these planes and let's see what happens. So the guy becomes a hero and the rest is history. But <laughs> it's, it's difficult sometimes. I mean, you look at it, or let's send somebody into space. Well, sometimes the only way to prove it is send somebody into space and let's hope he comes back. And lo and behold, he came back. So... <laughs> Yeah, that's a lot of just science in general. You just have to try it and see. Yeah, I mean, you do all the modeling possible and there comes a point that say, we don't know what else we can model here. And uh, the only way to give us confidence is to try it out. And uh, you try it out and you see what happens. And there are times when it doesn't work. So hopefully nobody gets hurt in the process. <laughs> Fingers crossed, right? <laughs> yeah. So simulation, I, you know, it's been used in automotive, like you said, for decades and just in that space. Moving forward, um, are there any new areas in which 
like simulation is being used outside of like automotive and airplanes and things like that? Electromagnetics, people are using that quite a lot. And this is not something I am very familiar with. I mean, there are, when you talk about electromagnetics, there are high frequency and low frequency analysis. And my understanding is you have to treat them differently in your analysis. It's not just a matter of using the same model and increasing the frequency. And let's see what happens because the model may not be able to get there. So you need a richer model sometimes to do that. So that is one case. Uh, a lot of people these days are talking about coupled analysis. So for example, fluid solid interaction, that's something that started around the nineties was very difficult back then. I was involved with a company that did that and I know how hard it is, but you have to think of it as a think as flow around an airplane first. And you look at the flow around an airplane, you don't imagine the wings of the plane deforming up and down or whatever. I mean, you just assume it's that rigid airplane over there and there is air around it and what happens. But what happens if there's a lot of turbulence and the plane starts shaking and the wings have this uh, low frequency vibration there, how does that affect the airflow? I mean, you need to know. So, Fluid solid interaction is an issue these days. I know there are companies that have been working on that and I believe some of them are, have been very successful at it. So what was a challenge, I would say more than 20 years ago, there's been a lot of progress because that's already been done in a lot of cases, people do that and it's successful. And when I say successful, it means you're getting results that agree with experiments in a large part, and uh, you're happy with that. So you can save a lot of money that you don't have to do certain experiments. Multiphysics is a word that I've heard thrown around a little bit. Could you talk a little bit more about multiphysics and what that means? Yeah, the fluid solid in interaction is one example of the multi-physics. You have the CFD analysis and you have a structural mechanics analysis. In fact, for the longest time, any company that did both had a CFD group and had a structural mechanics group. And it was not uncommon that these people didn't even know each other. You're talking about very large companies. I don't know, think of big aircraft companies, think of auto companies. They have thousands of employees at, I don't know, maybe dozens of locations around the world. Now with the internet, I'm sure these people talk a lot more, but before the internet, I mean, there was a group here and there was a group there and didn't know about each other. Now they know, not only they know about each other, but I, even though I'm not exactly on top of these, I wouldn't be surprised that they have a fluid solid interaction group or they should. <laughs> because it is in their interest in quite a lot of cases that they do this. There are also other types of multi-physics. There are, for example, cases where you do a thermal analysis and the temperature changes quite significantly and your material properties change with temperature. So your structural analysis is gonna depend on how hot the body is getting and how it deforms depends on how hot it is, but as it deforms, it may change the temperature. So you need to go back and forth to make sure that everything synchronizes with each other. There's also piezoelectric materials, 
where the current, etc., everything affects the behavior of the material. So there's there's there are a lot of multiphysics out there, and by multiphysics, it's it's basically meant that you used to have one program doing this very specific thing, another program doing that very specific thing. Multiphysics really means I'm going to do everything in one program only. And everything sometimes may mean just the fluid and the solid, the electrical and the structural, the thermal and the structural, and it goes on and on. So that's what the multiphysics stands for. Are there any things that you're like hoping to see in the future with the simulation space or that you're already seeing happen that you're very excited about? One thing I would like to see is uh, improvements in hardware. I mean, that always helps. We always like to have that so we can solve bigger and bigger problems because we know that in order to model problems correctly, we need to have a very fine mesh in some areas to be able to model the physics. We sometimes can see there's an error of 20% here, but I, I can't afford any more than that. That's all I can afford. So that's what I'm gonna use. And there's always the issue of automation as much as possible. If you think about it, I mean, there are a lot of CAD companies out there and there are a lot of designers that are very good in generating their models in CAD. And they would like to just push a button and say, does this work? <laughs> but in order to do this, it requires a lot of things. It requires that you take this geometry and from that you have to extract and generate a mesh and then from the mesh, you have to apply the loads, the boundary conditions, make sure you have the proper material models. And then you run the analysis, you extract the error, and then you do mesh refinement based on where the error is very large. And then you start all over again now with a different mesh until it converges to a narrow tolerance that you're happy with. And then you have to be able to visualize these results quickly and it could be a very large problem. Sometimes you won't have the hardware to do that. So fortunately these days, there are a lot of cloud computers out there. You can just rent them. I don't know how cheap or how expensive they are, but hey, they are there. So they are available for the public in general. So I see this type of a trend already happening. People are moving to the cloud. And basically because what most people have is a laptop. I work with finite elements, I don't know, eight to 10 hours a day. And what I have is a laptop with 64 gigabytes of memory and about eight cores of which I can use four before the machine starts choking. So it's very limited what I can actually do on my machine. Having access to a machine somewhere out there that I don't even know where physically the machine is, but I can use it. That is a big thing actually, because everybody used to be limited to the computers they had either in the office or a central computer. I mean, people used to rely on IBM 360s and VEXs, and there were all these older machines that people use. And, if you wanna have a model that is much bigger, you have to spend, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on a bigger mainframe. It's not like that anymore. 
you only use the so-called mainframe, which is not really a mainframe these days. I mean, it's just a stack of boards somewhere. <laughs> and uh, you can just try to break your problem into multiple pieces and send them into multiple machines at the same time. So all of that is available. And it's a wonderful trend because it gives people the ability to do this analysis. And not to mention when you want to look at results, it used to be people would do everything on their laptop. You don't need to do that like that these days. You can have the cloud actually compute everything on the areas that are gonna be visible when you wanna look at the results. You don't really need to look at things in areas that you are not interested in seeing. So you have the cloud compute everything for post-processing for you. Then it sends over the internet and all you get is a tiny, small little fraction of the original model with results being displayed on your computer. And you rotate and you can cut through it and it feels like, wow, I'm doing all of this on a hundred million elements. In reality, you're not. That's all being done in the cloud and being sent to you, just the areas that you wanna see. So that's a big improvement and I can see we are going this direction. And in fact, TechSoft is very good at that. TechSoft will have the components for you for anything you need end to end. We can read the CAD model and we can do all the way to meshing, modeling, running the analysis and sending the data to the cloud, post-processing it. I mean, all of that we have. So people can certainly use our tools to be able to do that. And in a way, it's almost like you can think of these tools as commodities. I mean, we support them, we write them, and everybody can use them. You don't have to like assume that you have something that the other one doesn't have. So everybody can benefit from it at the same time. And it's a nice... Uh, thing to be able to do. I mean, everybody feels good about it because we feel we're doing something good for the world. Everybody can benefit from our tools without this constraint of, oh, I don't want others to use. No, the more others use it, the more debugging that we're going to get on the software that you are also using, the more reliable the software is going to get that you are using, the better it's going to be, the better documented it's going to be. I mean, it's there are a lot of benefits and the fact that we can do this end to end these days, I think it's, it's terrific. That's really helpful. Thank you. I think that's all I have. Thank you for joining us on the Beyond 3D podcast hosted by TechSoft 3D. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review or subscribe on SoundCloud. To listen to past episodes or learn more about TechSoft 3D, visit www.techsoft3d.com forward slash blog. Send us comments and suggestions at info at techsoft3d.com. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next episode of Beyond 3D. Beyond 3D.